This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is uh, Germ Warfare, Battle of Ideas. I almost forgot the name of my show for a second. Anyway, <laughs> um, Michael Capuzzo, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you, Germ. Uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> um, we were just talking a moment ago, um, Capuzzo, um, and you were saying there's an Italian, there's an Italian heritage there. Well, my, my grandfather, Luigi Capuzzo, went from Italy, uh, immigrated from Italy to Boston, Massachusetts, or New York, and then Boston uh, in 1904. And I'm quite sure it was probably Luigi Capuzzo on the boat, but uh, for several generations later, that soft you know, sound is lost, unfortunately, at least in the United Lu States. <laughs> Luigi, it can't get more Italian than that. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Um, so you and I... Uh, kind of got in touch via uh, Peter Bregan. Uh, he's he's our, our mutual common denominator, a phenomenal man. Um, but as it turns out, so are you. What is what is your background? Well, I was so lucky to meet Peter and Ginger in this incredible book they've done that everyone has to read um, mm -hmm. about the global predators. Uh, I was, uh, well, I grew up in Boston since I gave you my grandfather's uh, history and uh, grew up in the Boston area and went to Northwestern University as a journalism major. And then I worked for 17 years at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Miami Herald, both of them, and um, was nominated, well, won a couple hundred journalism awards, was nominated for six Pulitzers by, by those newspapers and by Penguin and Random House when I wrote a couple of New York Times bestselling books with science themes, which got me onto the COVID story. My wife and I publish a, a magazine in uh, Pennsylvania and New York that has... Um, you know, has won so many journalism awards, and it's really a, a, um, a, a, a what do you say, a heartland effort, mom and pop effort, where we do it with local writers and, and, and photographers, and you know, it's a great affirmation of the human spirit, you know, in northern Appalachia and in upstate New York, where the elites have decided to dislocate uh, its existence. But anyway, we're sort of proof that it all exists, you know. <laughs> um, well, when you say journalists these days, though. Um people tend to have a sour taste in their mouth. Understandably. I mean, I, I became a, you know, a, I, in an area, uh, I was kind of onto this globalist nonsense early on, you know, my wife and I met at the Philadelphia Inquirer and she was a, a restaurant critic in Philadelphia, um, uh, you know, Philadelphia as well. And, you know, we love Philadelphia. We have friends at the, well, colleagues at the New York Times, old friends at the Washington Post, and that's our world, the legacy media. But the decline and collapse of it has been just shocking, startling. We kind of got an early sense of it living in a, in a beautiful, beautiful, very cultural town in the middle of nowhere in northern Appalachia in Pennsylvania and realizing 10 years ago that people were now saying there was such a thing as bitter clingers, you know, that people who, who voted for Trump and before that uh, voted for, you know, whoever uh, were, were, were bitter and they're the so-called losers in globalism and filled with bigotry and hatred and you know, I grew up in one of the wealthiest towns in, in, in suburbs of Boston, went to Northwestern, have spent my whole life in big cities. And the people in central Pennsylvania are just as wonderful and just as everything as anybody else. And so we yeah. knew that that big lie was on. My introduction to this story, the COVID story, to bring it to, to your audience, to the urgency of today, was when uh, my wife and I were home on Mother's Day 2020. And, you know, there was almost the second anniversary of the of the when now we know fictional pandemic uh, or invented pandemic uh, by the WHO, second month anniversary, people dying all over the world, 
uh, the media just, you know, the, the, the world is ending. And we saw Dr. Pierre Corey uh, testified before the Senate the first time, not the ivermectin testimony, about steroids. Um, and so here I am as a, you know, reporter for my whole life. Yes, a journalist, I hate to admit it. I, I understand people are angry and I get it. I'm angry too. I'm like really pissed. I mean, I just can't freaking take it anymore. I really can't. It, it, it's incredible. So um, we heard Pierre Corey and I look at his, you know, the it's, it's a sort of podcast view in Ron Johnson's Senate hearing where it says he's the, um, you know, highly published professor of pulmonology at the University of Wisconsin, Madison Medical School, et cetera, et cetera. And he and a group of other really high, highly published critical care doctors have a way with steroids to save 95% of the 100% actually people in, in ICUs. And at that time with COVID, at that time with the ventilators and all the disasters, 80 to 90% were dying in, in, on ventilators in New York City yeah. and yeah. 40 to 60% in every continent of the world. And so yeah, South Africa, too. Right. And so the next day and the day after that, when no news was forthcoming on the biggest story in our lifetime, I knew that something was wrong. And I committed to do it in a book on Pierre Corey, which I'm working on and on all his colleagues, Dr. Paul Merrick at the FLCCC, um, incredible men uh, and all heroes, uh, Julio Iglesias, Joe Verone, all doctors. And um, uh, and uh, Julio uh, Iglesias. Yeah. Not Julio. As in the singer. No, not Julio Iglesias. Um, Dr. Iglesias. Uh, <laughs> Jose, yeah, Jose Iglesias, Humberto Maduri at the University of Tennessee, and um, uh, and, 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 and those are five of them at all. Four immigrants and one brash New Yorker, Corey, and Dr. Paul Merrick. I mean, the greatest doctors in the pandemic are five of them. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the press, and I've gone on a, a journey of two years now trying to figure out what the hell happened to to the media. I mean, What's Tell me a bit about that journey, because I, I, I mean, I've been following it as well. I think, in fact, the entire world has been following that same journey. Uh, I'd right. love to hear, I'd love to hear your perspective as a journalist. Well, you know, if you look at in the United States, I mean, a lot of the same issues that animate the world in the United States are similar with populism now versus the sort of, you know, uniparty of the establishment, which uh, is not globalist establishment. So we're. If, if you were looking at it from the Republican or conservative side of the aisle, the idea that, you know, that there have been critics of the press for, I mean, Rush Limbaugh, Hannity, you know, even today on Fox News, they make all their money and have all their insights principally about the, the failure of the press is bias, bias, bias. The media is dead. The media is dead because of bias. Well, whatever your political stripe, and this is not about politics, um, it's so far beyond bias now. And I say what I say is the media is dead. But the question is. What killed it? It's like a murder-suicide. It's not, in other words, you could argue that, that reporters are ideologically or ideologically bent toward, toward the left and for years have covered things from that framework. But some of my best friends are those people. And, yeah. and, they, and they, I would describe them as, you know, they loved America. They had, in, in the free world, and they, they wanted justice and social justice and with different sort of solutions, but shared similar values to libertarians, conservatives, etc. You know, this is a well-known story. But what's happened now is, is is elevated way beyond that to just pure and murderous propaganda. And they even say it, you know, it's just one of the ear, earmarks of power is they love to let you know that they're powerful and you're not. So they're not hiding it. The conspiracy, mm. actually, conspiracy might not be the right word because it's so open. And the best example in the media, well, there's so many, but the best um, sort of institutional example is when the BBC announced, what was it, in January, that henceforth the BBC, the AP, Reuters, 
um, you know, a bunch of others at Facebook that could reach billions of people would no trust longer be news. reporting both sides of the story. They would be yeah, trust and use. Trust yeah, and use initiative. initiative. I mean, that's there it is mm -hmm. laid out. There's no no plainer. It's an absolute complete violation of everything I did as a journalist. And, you know, my again, some of the top writers in The Washington Post and editors are my friends. And I'm sure they would disagree with me on some of this, but there's they're trustworthy, good people. But I know and they know in their hearts that this is a complete violation of everything they've learned, a complete uh, turning a turning away from um, holding government accountable. Uh, anyway, I could go on. You got me started. Go ahead. What's your next question? No, 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 please. But that's the point. Please go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I mean just, how, what happened? I think there are, I think it's a, you know, what is it when you look at any train wreck or any car crash or plane crash? It's a multiplicity of factors. Um, one of them that interested me, and this be, may be the most geeky, but I think it'll be an interest your audience because it's as a result of it, millions of people have died unnecessarily and may continue to do so. Mm. That is the complete takeover um, by, by uh, uh, of science by science of science journalism by by scientists or really a scientism worldview. So I'll give you a brief history of it. I wrote, you know, I've written for the Wall Street Journal, written for the Washington Post. Um, Etc. And none of these outlets were interested in the story of Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick and the FLCCC. Um, so in May of 2021, my wife and I published this 10,000 word story, which you can look up on the on the Internet called um, uh, The Drug That Cracked COVID. And it's all about it, it's a, it, it's it was sort of the first big story and still the definitive history of, of how Corey Merrick and the FLCCC um, brought ivermectin to the world and how systematically the governments of the world and the media shut it down, even as, as it was obvious that it would save people and probably end the pandemic. Um, that story, even though it was published in this uh, mom and pop journal, my wife and I, it's called Mountain Home, um, went all around the world. Satori uh, uh, Amura, the, the doctor in Japan, who won the Nobel Prize and invented, uh, discovered ivermectin, sent me personal congratulations. Um, a doctor in Taiwan who was trained at Boston University Medical School and was head of the vet hospital in Taiwan, trans spent a week translating into Mandarin uh, and, and to send it to all over the, the Mandarin-speaking world. And, it, and the head of a big company in Poland, an international company, translate, spent a week translating to Polish. It's a story of a buffalo, and a buffalo grandmother, a human story that shows through narrative rather than essay argument. That's another thing about the media. All we have now is essay argument and podcasts, which are wonderful, but a narrative storytelling about a Buffalo grandmother whose life was saved by these doctors while the hospital yeah. killed her. Um, uh, I might have got off the point a little bit then, but I, what, what, where, no, no, I was just asking like what happened and like how did how did it get to where we are? And and I suppose an ex, an, an extended quest, uh, question would be why the very obvious suppression and censorship i mean what would have been the reason well i think that the it's a multi-layered question i think at the highest level we all know it's power and and it's this globalist power and it's this global, actual conspiracy is the proper word for it as we said my wife and i started a substack called rescue that covers all this yeah, and it's great brought us together too um and what Ray and Jr. have so brilliantly and robert f kennedy jr have so brilliantly exposed in their books uh, this this insane globalist takeover of the world. I mean, you know, uh, Alexander the Greek, the great, great went through what thirty countries. These people want to take over two hundred. You know, in, in an eye blink, it's unbelievable. Yeah. 
one of the so there are a lot of pressures we could talk about. I think the reason I told the story about what my wife and I did and what happened with that story is I was so befuddled since I had the biggest story in the world, which I knew as a journalist, and I think anybody on the street can be a journalist who's just a decent human being and say, wait, everyone's dying of a pandemic and these top doctors with impeccable credentials can now save everybody and it's not a story? What went wrong? And one of the things I found out was that my colleagues who are science writers and really brilliant, decent people have been trained for now a generation that the gold standard of medicine is the, um, is the random control trial and nothing else yeah. counts. So, but what we're that, and I think we're getting at one of the most important, one of these most overlooked issues, not overlooked, everyone knows it's been an attack on the Hippocratic Oath, but the, the shocking way I witnessed it as a journalist was um, Joseph, Dr. Joseph Verone is one of the five founders of the FLCCC. He's a, um, he's a, a Mexican-American, highly published, has a partnership with, the, had a partnership for research with a Nobel Prize winner who discovered AIDS, um, a brilliant doctor and had his own clinic, still operates there in Houston, that he's part owner of, and spent $7 million of his own money doing tests across the city to sort of get an idea of what was going on with the disease, uh, more tests than the city was doing, as well as serving in this working class neighborhood, all the relatively poor uh, black, Hispanic, undocumented immigrants in this Houston neighborhood that came to him all for free with COVID. And these were really you know, highly vulnerable people they were old, they were sick, they were dying, they were in the ICU, all with COVID, when they were all dying at the hospitals in New York City. And he saved all of them. And he saved all of them with, with steroids and ivermectin and a mix of things that the, that the media was denying. Anyway, to get to the point, um, I know for a fact and document that the Associated Press, Reuters, and CNN sent crews, a total of probably 12 people between the three of them, and spent a week with him witnessing that he was saving every single life and knew it and reported that they were all dying. And I think one of the weirdest things is I looked in the faces of these young guys who were with the AP, the reporters and the photographers, and they won an AP prize for their reporting. It was very touching. I mean, they were earnest and did a good job. And I thought at the Gates level, there's conspiracy. At the Fauci level, there's, there's, they're operating like, you know, Genghis Khan, you know, the evil of history. But at the level of some of those reporters, they'd literally been told no, 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 you can't really report this because the science doesn't show it. The science the science desk is telling them there is no randomized controlled trial, so it would be irresponsible for you to report that. I think that is the biggest issue that we're facing today, sort of a big data takeover of the world at the most human level. If a reporter representing humanity can go into an emergency room with a top doctor and I see 100 people live and say they're dying because science says they didn't live, and it's not important, we're cooked. That, that it makes you want to go to the poets, makes you want to go back to Christ, it was less humanity. It's a spiritual war. That's the heart that has to be touched. We can vote out presidents. We can get rid of Fauci. But unless we see the deep humanity behind the single life, uh, the, you know, and a reporter can't feel that, you know, it's really troubling. So anyway, it's a little different. What, what is the purpose of a journalist? Well, the journalist should be uh, the eyes and ears of society and an increasingly complex society helping interpret, helping relay and interpret events, you know, as they unfold. I, and that's where I saw real betrayal from the past. Mm. Um, you know, it sort of goes without saying that you're trying to help humanity, that everyone's dying of a, of a, of a pandemic and that you've had found a way to save everyone in your town or your city because you know you would bring news that a doctor has a solution. Sure, you call all sides, oh, it's premature, it's whatever, but you air it. 
I think the traditional journalist always was airing, quote, two sides to everything uh, on the premise that, that the humanity we have is valid enough that we listen to two sides. But now we've yeah. got this sort of globalist power that has decided they know the truth and no one else can, can utter it. And that's what's really dangerous. Yeah, and part of that is fact checkers who assume that they have this monopoly on truth. Right. And those, and that really shows you, it's almost like the mafia. I mean, I don't know. I suppose they're really talented people or hitmen in the mafia, but you got to think that they have a lower IQ than the, than the Godfather who's running it. Right. Well, if you look at that, <laughs> I mean, it's really sad. And I'm a journalist. I relate. I've been in since I was 15, you know, been paid for it and, you know, did the whole thing. So I can empathize with the young woman who was associated press fact checker. And if you look at her, if you look at her, um, uh, bio, and I did after she wrote the, one of the worst pieces that killed a lot of people in the world and still is, not by any intention of her, I'm sure, um, where she did a fact check on Dr. Pierre Corey. And so, you're, so she did this fact check as a young journalist with no significant training except being told to shut him down and an attitude to do that. I mean, her background was his, you know, covering City Hall for some paper in the Midwest and then wrote for Teen Vogue. She said on her bio, she wrote for Teen Vogue. Now, this is not to run down this young woman who's probably going to have a brilliant career in journalism. But the fact is, if the fate of the world is at, at stake and you have one of the top doctors in the world who's discovered how to save almost everybody and is testifying before the Senate, the AP has brilliant science writers. This is the best person they could send to evaluate whether this yeah. was true or not. Yeah. So later, there's a 20 minute tape where that Corey has showed me where he's being interviewed by her and he lays out. 15 random controlled trials that show ivermectin's working everywhere. She completely ignores that, says false, you know? it's. But again, it's the fix is in. The fix is in because she's been told by her, you know, her betters what to do. It's tragic and, and, and outrageous. Why do people fear the phrase conspiracy theory so much? It's a term that has been dominating over the last two years or, or, or so, like I've never seen. Um, and it's... It's kind of strange to me because conspiracies happen daily. I mean, Julius Caesar was conspired against, and that was thousands of years ago. Right, right, right. Yeah, I. Why do you think? I mean, I. Uh, I whatever power political correctness and so-called cancel culture has to instill fear that we are no longer part of the tribe unless we change our opinion, they applied that now to this sort of ultimate test. You know, um, conspiracy theory. I. I keep defending it because conspiracy is a perfectly fine word. It's not a cliche. It's in all kinds of statutes in the United States, I'm sure everywhere. Um, developers and the mayor uh, and the mafia conspired to uh, overturn local zoning for their own profit. I mean, it's just what happens when people get together and do something that's kind of illicit in sort of a secretive yeah. way. So why can't the most powerful rich people in the world do that too? Are we denying them the ability to conspire? I don't think we should. <laughs> of course they conspire. I mean, what, what do you think happens at Davos? Right, right. You know, or we have emails with Fauci and uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, saying, you know, Martin, what's his name? The, the three, the three famous scholars, epidemiologists who did the Great Barrington Declaration on, on, on lockdowns being sort of disastrous, and they all have impeccable credentials from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And there are emails we have between Fauci and and Francis Collins, these famous scientists, saying, "We've got to shut them down now, destroy them." I mean, it's like a movie. It's like Send Jerry out. He'll plug them as they come out of the restaurant. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, what's that but a conspiracy? The term conspiracy theory goes back quite far. I mean, everybody knows that it was sort of weaponized by the CIA after um, 
uh, JFK's assassination with the Warren Commission report. But I mean, it goes back further than that, all the way what to the American Civil War um, in terms of the usage. You're right, and and Peter Bregan is is has written brilliantly about that on our rescue site. Uh, and so I guess what you see, starting with the Civil War and and with Kennedy in our own time, uh, is the ability of these. Um, of propaganda of these uh, information warriors to mm. they know what they're doing this sort of color revolution to get people afraid of certain things branded certain ways it's the branding you know how we it's not just conspiracy theory i mean i'm gosh i'm like white and christians in sort of a generic way i think buddha has things to say too and uh you know and i actually own a gun but that makes me a terrible person <laughs> um, you know right on the face of it you know one of the scary things just as a quick aside about identity politics i urge everyone to read Dostoevsky, if you want to know what true evil really is, I wrote a book called The Murder Room about the world's greatest detective in, in, in on the monstrous evil. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot of this from him and, and, and from Dostoevsky, if you look, if you want to know what true evil really is. Um, I've also had top scientists, this gets off it a little bit, but I've had some of the top scientists in the world who are pure, absolute, you know, logical scientists, doctors say they've gone back to the Bible. And one of them told me, Read, read, read um, uh, if you want to find Bill Gates, read Revelation in the Old Testament. Mm. I asked, another, I asked this, this famous um, profiler, or he doesn't really use the word profile because that's kind of a misnomer for what they do, uh, crime assessment detective. He's like living Sherlock Holmes from Scotland Yard and, and you know, NYPD. I said, Richard, what do you think of a scientist who says, Richard's kind of a sort of sneering atheist, somewhat agnostic, whatever, depending on how much wine he's had. But he's certainly not a religious person. And I said, Richard, what do you think of a, as a top scientist yourself, a psychiatrist and forensic psychologist, what do you think of a top scientist saying that Bill Gates is like, you know, the beast in, 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 um, in the Old Testament? And he paused for a second and I said, do you disapprove of that? He said, this is how he talks. Uh, no, I don't. One must not. To be, able to, to be able to defeat evil, one must first recognize what it is. You know? Yeah. You know? If you look at his book, and we're going to be on rescue.substack.com that my wife and I started to get the word out. Um, and we have mainstream, we're sort of the only mainstream journalists I know of with the credentials we've, we've brought people in, LA Times investigative reporters who are telling the truth. Um, but um, if, you, if you look at, uh, you know, what do you think happened? I mean, who are the predators? I mean, Reagan, Reagan identifies the most convincing part of his book, and we're and on rescue, we're going to excerpt it are a couple of chapters, 14 and 15. You have to buy this book. It's called, what's it called? COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. Yeah. I can't call it We Are the Prey for short. But um, the most awe-inspiring part of his book, it's not in the headlines anywhere, is how starting in about 2015, there's this clear, well-documented trail of a dozen or so people, but it's coming up with a business plan that vaccines are going to be the next great investment and vaccines is somehow going to save the world, selling it to the WHO. And then Fauci, the head of the CDC in China, Michael Bloomberg, whose, whose money, you know, has funded the most prestigious Michael Bloomberg School of Public Health at um, Johns Hopkins, all of them doing what Gates called, at least in one instance, germ games, where they're sitting around these, these you know, this is like having uh, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, all of them around one table saying, mm. well, we've got to act this out because we know there's going to be a, a, a pandemic and we know we're going to have to turn around with this new mRNA technology and make miraculous uh, vaccines. And we know we're going to have to sell the public on it. We know they're going to resist it. 
So we're going to have to completely control the press. We're going to have to know how to leverage, uh, uh, you know, uh, propaganda to control attitudes. And it's just such a smoking gun because they, they, they act, their last germ game was like the month before all this happened. And they actually, yeah. they, had, they had like, you know, fictional things like, um, uh, the, the pandemic hits 2025. It's a rogue coronavirus. What's going to happen? And um, a dog just walked in the room. Sorry. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it will open the door herself. Anyway, um, so, you know, you see all that. And what's so damning about it is, okay, you could say these are just this, some of the smartest, richest people in the world, uh, you know, a great philanthropist and these top scientists at the CDC, et cetera. And they're doing this because they're trying to save people when something horrible happens and it is likely to happen in the global world, the spread of viruses. But what's so damning is they never ever bring up, well, okay, what about doctors? What about, what are we gonna have for treatment? It's all like, how are we gonna shove vaccines into everyone's arm, regardless of the cost? And there it is. It's like whoever did the movie, The Plandemic had the word for it. They planned for this. To say they planned it is maybe a little too far given the evidence, but they planned for it. And they planned for it in such a, I think, you know, one of the things I learned from Richard Walter in the murder room about this great detective is um, something like two thirds of convictions for murder are based on circumstantial evidence rather than smoking gun. And based on cir circumstantial evidence, it's clear they planned it. It's clear. And I, I think, you I know, agree with you. yeah, yeah. Um, so that is the most shocking thing. So when you ask who are the predators, who are the global predators, uh, you know, it's the people who are benefiting from this. You know, one of, I, have you have you interviewed or I'm going to look to the side here? You heard of this book, *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind*? Yeah, uh, it's written by I forget his name now. He is Klaus Schwab's right hand man. Right. And you've all I've helped. actually got it. I bought I bought that book. Yeah. Well, good for you. You're ahead of me because I've been trying to read it. It's just such nonsense. What do you think? Of yeah. No. Uh, also, I stopped reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah. I didn't know at the time at the time I bought it and, and read it. I didn't know that it was written by Klaus Schwab's uh, number one. Right. Man. I just yeah. I've just been reading a little bit because they say it's the it's plus uh, Schwab's um, sort of mm. uh, intellect. What's his name? What's his uh, name? That's Ural something. Yuval Noah Harari. He's a yeah, that's him. Israeli historian. And He's a very vile, vile individual. Right. And he basically. Mm. His whole thesis, which I've just read, I haven't read the book yet, but I think it gives us hope because it's so outrageously stupid because mm. his whole thesis is that, you know, nations, uh, ethnicity, uh, you know, God, uh, family life, all those things are just myths. If journalism is in the toilet right now, how, how can it make a comeback? Uh, just by trying to tell the truth, trying to get both sides of the story. I think all these things are connected. If you have a, a this this book by this uh, Israeli you know philosopher historian saying that all of history is bunk, that anybody who believes in God or believes that France or South Africa or or the United States should have their own sovereign nations is just an idiot, uh, then it's easy not to print both sides. The idea of being a journalist who kind of wants to correct humanity, wants to help it get better, but loves it, loves it enough to say. Well, that's interesting. What is, uh, what is, I know what, um, you know, what, uh, you know, the nation thinks, what does germ think, <laughs> you know, yeah. as opposed to uh, shutting it all down. So good. going back to the basics, holding a, up the powerful to account, holding government to account. I mean, my, you know, the Washington Post uh, exposed uh, Nixon's Watergate 
this is Watergate times a billion. And they just, they're, they're, they've gone from being uh, watchdogs to lapdogs, you know, helping it happen. What's, um, their, what's their tagline? What uh, darkness dies, democracy, democracy what? dies in darkness? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel bad because these are things, you know, the top editors and reporters at the New York Times are my mentors, David Halberstam, you know, Gene Roberts. These are people I, it's like if you, I still consider heroes. So I'm conflicted, but I'm not conflicted in the betrayal of the profession of its highest standards. And the, the terrible, I mean, you know, how many people, if McCulloch, who's the top cardiologist and one of the top ranked cardiologists in the world, and, and Merrick, one of the top clinical, you know, doctors and uh, critical care doctors, and, and Corey and many others have proven that they're saving 80% or more people, regardless of age or conditions, with early treatment, and that they could have stopped this from the beginning. And 4 million people, five, what, 6 million, I just looked it up today, 6 million and something, 14,000 dead from COVID, which means about 5 million lives have been, it's like a genocide. It re, I think it really is. I mean, I, you know. That's, you, and, and that's not even, well, is that including the, the injection? No, right, right. That's not including the injection. And that, and in a way, it's right. They're like, what's the bigger unfolding horror? Maybe the infection. They're combined. But if you just look at, you know, when Ukraine, when the invasion happened, I was looking at the. There was attention paid in the media for the first time forever about how Stalin did the. What do they call it? The Holodomor. The um, yeah, the, Hol- the the Holodomor, yeah. Yeah, Holodomor, death by starvation. So he mm-hmm. killed an estimated four million people by withholding food. So how is that different from Fauci? And his and his and his fellow thugs killing an estimated five million people by withholding treatment for the sick. And the sad thing is, Fauci's untouchable. Right. I guess it's going to happen. What are we going to do about it? I guess the new media has to rise, new journalism. And I can see we're we're in the process of doing that ourselves. We have investors, and I can see, and, and new media is rising. Um, mm. Right now, the doctors and and you are doing a tremendous job, and the doctors uh, like Corey are, are their own sort of journalists. It's um, this is a little bit far afield, but uh, I, I'm I'm looking to other, you know, you're looking to Soviet uh, tyranny and or is anything like that? Are we facing anything like that? And I, I saw this brilliant uh, analysis by this professor at Northwestern named um, what's his name? I'll remember it. Uh, he's a famous Russian literature scholar. Answering the questions, this is relevant to today, to all of us today, our lives might depend on it, right, of all this. Um, why were Russian novelists so great? Why were Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, why do they tower over everybody in France and, you know, the United States? And he said, because they had to be. Because uh, the, under the tyranny that was with the czars, but then it really Lenin and and uh, and Solzhenitsyn, of course, under the more modern tyranny is the equivalent of them, I think. Uh, they had to put everything in their books because there was... Because sociologists weren't allowed to speak, historians weren't allowed. Nobody was allowed to speak, so the novelists yeah. had to be everybody. And so I think that's what Pierre Corey is doing now. Is why why have the doctors become journalists? Thank God they can at least try. Thank God they can do it. You know, and get on these platforms like yours, and on you know Rumble or whatever. Today's April Fool's Day. Who yeah. are the fool? Who are the fools? I think I am because I. I uh, I picked up uh, I saw Mercola's uh, story today, Doctor Mercola, saying that the FDA had um, had uh, banned real meat, and and it was very convincing because you know the ideologues at the FDA, <laughs> the University of California, have been wanting to do it because of methane gas, right? 
uh, emits, you know, the farts from cows are killing the planet. But this, this is a ridiculous thing. My heart was in my throat. I believed it for about 40 seconds. <laughs> I also had this image that everyone around me believed it. And we just say, oh, well, you know, they, they banned uh, ivermectin. Now it's time to ban meat. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> I don't know. Who are your fools for the day? No, I don't. I don't mean quite literally today. I'm, I, I suppose I was asking more meta, um, because you know I, it, it's it's weird, um, Mike. Um, I never thought that the entire world would would be telling the same story, precisely the same story. You're in the United States. Right. I'm on the bottom. I'm the bottom tip of the African continent. Right. And we both have. We both have the same story. It's it's the strangest thing. It is. I, I mean, my mother said to me, you know, she she remembers the Vietnam War and the moon landing and all that stuff. She says, but this has been the weirdest time of her life. I, I think you went, how old's your mother? Uh, she's watching. So oh, if, okay. I, if, if, I, if, I, if I gave if I gave her age, uh, she'll never talk to me again. <laughs> she's 48, she looks 27. I know. I, I, there I we can, go. You're a handsome guy, I can see it, you know. So, um, yeah, I, it's, uh, and I, I first had an inkling of that, or at first it slapped me in the face is a better way to put it, when Pierre Corey and all these doctors are talking to their peers all over the world, including South Africa, and the same thing's happening everywhere. The media is shutting them down, big pharma is shutting yeah. them down, establishment science. Um, that's why I think it's important we understand the philosophy. We understand this, this fruitcake, I'm going to look at his name again, Harari, uh, there's a book that Obama loves and Gates loves, and New York Times loves, Sapiens, because this is what gives me hope. How can I make this populist enough? I'm no philosopher. I'm a total amateur. So hopefully mm. I can be populist enough for anybody because it has to be for me. But they basically are the, the theme of this book is that, you know, the, the globalists are onto the idea that yeah. that none of these things, nations exist and all that. So it's just propaganda. So all we have to do is fill up the, our heads with an alternative story and we'll fall for it. But they're looking at a thousand-year culture war. They're looking at people who will die to defend because it, they're great. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Their great error is that any scientist knows this, that human it's the denial of human nature. It's the modern problem, the denial of human nature. Yeah. You read books like um, Hannah Arendt, uh, the, the, the Origins of Totalitarianism, or 1938 or whatever. It's a classic, which I have not read, but I've read from, read of. Mm. Uh, the number one tool of, of the, um, you know, Stalin and the rest is, Sure, it's the gun and the government, but it's propaganda. That's their biggest tool because yeah. they know, it's kind of like our mind. I have a friend who wrote a book about elephants uh, who are, this is kind of maybe a silly analogy, but elephants who were brought from Africa to circuses in the United States. And as they fly in the nose of a 747, um, they, they're chained. And, and they at any point could break those chains and go through uh, the nose into the Atlantic or be free. Or actually the same is true in a circus tent. Um, but it's it's the propaganda speaker who comes yes. enough that they stay chained, and we really are. We have to break those chains. The ringmaster. Uh, mm. And I think I think the media is so is more important than people. People focus understandably on government corruption and pharma corruption, but I think the media is more important than any of them because they shape reality. We've already had uh, these great doctors revealing everything, but pe people can't aren't budged. You know, one of the things that gives me hope, if I could be positive about it, is a couple things. One is when you say who are the fools, I don't think there's any stupider or less informed, and I hate to do this to my profession, than a say New York Times science writer about COVID. 
<laughs> no, really, it's true. And I and I and I mean that in in so many different ways. Number one, they don't st- still seem to understand that it's a two-stage disease. Number two, they don't understand that each variant is different and some are more deadly than others. Number three, they don't understand that it hurts old people but not young. Number four, they don't understand what's happened to the Hippocratic Oath. They're just they're just completely idiotic about all this stuff. They are the big fools. They're marching us right to hell with this with this with their ignorance, their scientific ignorance, you know. And I mean, by fool, you know, you don't mean actually literally stupid. You just mean, you know, uh, not thinking critically. Well, I if I could if I could take stupid out of the bin next to uh, conspiracy and try to shine it up a little bit. Dumb, dumb. I think in a way it's a certain idiocy because I think ideology makes people stupid. And I think that, yeah, they, you know, yeah. And, and, and so some of my best friends in the business, I love them to death. And I, I think we'll love each other forever and hopefully, you know, even more robustly again on the other side, if there is one. Um, but, uh, you know, I look at this idea. I said, how did you buy the idea yes. that, um, you know, how did you buy all this? And I and, and the answer I have for that, and I've lived it. My, my wife says, you know, a lot of people were in Vietnam and a lot of people just watched it on TV. But living in rural America, when the globalist ideology started to set in and defame bitter clingers and now it's defamed anybody anybody in the world who who believes that that a man there's a biological boy and girl or that france should be a nation is defamed. Yeah, the 600 and the 600 genders and yeah right so mm. an attack on all these pillars of civilization so for a reporter who's trained to understand history to swallow all that uncritically that's stupid and i think it's because their vision has been so narrowed by arrogance fear whatever of ideology ideology becomes the single explanation for everything which is a, t- a tremendous failure of intelligence, I think, or character, or both. It, it, it blinds you. Right, right. Uh, but Do the you... hopeful thing I wanted to say, go ahead, sorry. No, no, please, no. The hopeful thing I wanted to say is with this rescue platform that we've started on Substack, and we've had some stories get 600,000 views. Mm-hmm. We uh, had an investigative reporter, Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and Linda Bovine, who, Bonvi rather, who um, did it, uh, got forced the New York Times and the Washington Post to issue corrections on their COVID reporting because they had reported, remember when the FDA said, you're not a horse, you're not a, you're not a cow, don't take it. And then there was that surge of reports that people in um, Mississippi, the first one was people in Mississippi were 70% of calls to the, the, you know, the helpline were poisonings mm-hmm. for ivermectin. And that went in New York Times, everybody else reported it where people were using ivermectin and it was dangerous. Yep. Well, our reporters, investigative reporters, called down there and got the freedom of information stuff showing the FDA set it all up and what a hoax it was. And basically, uh, they called the head of the the, um, the lab down there in Mississippi and said, how many calls you said it was 70 percent? Oh, it was uh, 2 percent. What? I'm sorry. You didn't say that very loud. Oh, 2 percent. <laughs> oh, so could you tell me how many people was that total? Uh, four. What? How many? Four people. <laughs> four people. And they were all fine. And it causes this, you know, huge. Uh, uh, anyway, it's crazy. Your mother's. And right. then lest lest we forget uh, the incident with Joe Rogan. Oh yeah, yeah, Joe Rogan and Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback, um, and friends of mine who are top journalists are just they think those they're, they're completely bonkers. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's because I one of the things my wife and I have been, you know, and are like racking our heads. What can we do different that? Uh, you know that that 
that other places aren't doing. And the one thing we concluded is we need a new New York Times. We need a new Wall Street Journal. Yeah. We need a new Le Monde. And one, one yeah. an obvious one is, you know, the 14 children in the United States, probably more like 100 who've died from the vaccine. Nobody's yeah. even one of their stories. Every one of them deserves a story. Or the, the Uttar Pradesh, you know, where Uttar Pradesh in India, where ivermectin kind of wiped out the, you know, the, the, the COVID and with the, mm. and, that, and no foreign correspondence for the Chicago Tribune or the New York Times will go there, you know, no one has to. Do you think that there's been a, a an awakening of sorts around the world? Absolutely. And I, I when I, I started to say, be positive and then I maybe got negative, but one of the positive things, the awakening that I've seen that you're talking about, or part of what you might be talking about is on our rescue site, um, the writers we have, are from across the spectrum. So we have Trump voters, and it's, they're populists, I guess. We also have people on, on the left who, um, people and Trump voters who would be at each other's throats over climate change, for instance, but share um, yes. share this passion to get the truth out at the deepest level. I think what's happened on the left is the pop, it, it, populism is now figuring out what it really is, what it's fighting for, which is the human spirit. It really is. It really is a spiritual battle. I mean, Naomi Wolf, of all people, a longtime leftist intellectual, wrote a great column about is it time to talk about God? And she's right. Mm, it's a, I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're figuring that out. Uh, and I think that the, 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 the fools I was talking about before, whose ideology blinds them, don't really yes. realize or don't take seriously that left and right are combining on this. But do you think it still matters? I mean, if you, if, if you type my name into the internet, I mean, I constantly come up as being far right ultra right all that kind of stuff right that's that's right. how i'm represented on the internet but i'm starting to think that those terms don't mean anything anymore um because the whole zeitgeist has shifted in the last couple of years and it seems to be more a case exactly what you're saying now that this new kind of collection of common denominators that's bringing people into unity uh fighting against some sort of totalitarian um shadow um, and now it's more about our liberties and our freedoms. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, that, that that's inspiring. I think we are. It is a worldwide movement for freedom and for, for the beauty of ordinary life that can be protected in a democracy. And I think it's it, it, it's I think the, these foolish globalists on April 1st have ignited such an outrageous thing that it binds. I mean, makes this as much as I have reverence for the civil rights movements of the the 60s and Martin Luther King and all that. This is the greatest civil rights movement in history because they're talking, they're attacking all of humanity and its most precious things, its spiritual essence. Yeah. You know? So I think it will bind all of us. On the other hand, left and right will still have a role simply because, try this on, for size. Um, I did an investigation, a book that I'm working on still on, um, anyway, it's about Stanford and the murder of, of, of the famous person out there, et cetera. But I discovered in intellectual history that Plato identified two forces in history. And, and one was the, the, the humanist, not the humanist, what did he call them? The, um, uh, and in the, the French in the 17th century wrote about this. Swift wrote a book about it, who wrote, you know, the satire and Gulliver's Travels. Um, it, there were two forces in history that the, uh, uh, the traditionalists, no, what was it? The modernists and the traditionalists. And the modernists were always, as soon as gunpowder was discovered, um, they were like, you know what, and a lot of the famous scientists in history, like, you know, whatever Plato said, whatever um, Christ said, whatever Buddha said, that's nothing now because we discovered gunpowder. And and they're always looking toward the future. And yet there yeah. are people who say, 
we can never outlive the need to listen to Christ and Buddha and Martin Luther King. Yeah, I think you're right. And that tension is always there. And I think you can see it in this movement, in the figure, in these really wonderful figures of Robert Kennedy Jr. and Peter and Ginger Reagan. Because Peter and Ginger are very, you know, uh, patriotic Americans, Trump's supporters, and Robert F. Kennedy's a longtime Democrat. Their books, yeah. their books overlap, but there are differences in spirit and emphasis that someone on the right brings and someone on the left brings that are different, and they need each other. Be- because of these common grounds now that seem to have developed between people in terms of uh, fighting for the same cause, now suddenly they're more willing right. to chat about something that might have been taboo then, but now not now because you know they, they've got their rapport. You're right. I think that's a great insight. I think that people are finding each other who have shared interests and shared interests is a, is a euphemism for it. I mean, this is, you know, vital humanity that we're uniting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also I find myself, I don't know, well, you, you make your living doing it, but I find myself much less willing to tolerate. My mother raised me to be, she was sort of Victorian, raised me to be a gentleman, you know, and I'm still like that. I don't like conflict. And I think that mm. you should let people say something stupid at least three times in a row, maybe five for family, before <laughs> you strike back. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting less tolerant of it because there's more at stake. And so, you know, mm. I want to be polite. I want to be respectful. But I, I, I've said to, you know, I walk with these three guys who are three of my best friends, and they're all like shooting down ivermectin, you know, just because, mm. and they're on left and right. And, uh, you know, um, and, and they're shooting it down. And I said, isn't it, isn't it sad that, you know, Clarence Thomas, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States can ask, are there any other treatments? And that I know more than he does, you know, and that you know more than he does. Two of these guys got ivermectin through doctors I know, and it might have helped save their life. And they all shot me down. It's like the definition of a bourgeois. He just wants yeah. comfort, you know. And I just said to them, I mean, this is like totally out of character for me. I said, you're all fake. You're not liberals. I'm the only liberal here. This is genocide yeah. here, and you're voting for it. You know, uh, as overwhelmingly effective as podcasts are and um, social media, uh, I still see uh, stories unwritten. And somehow, just like left needs right, print needs, you know, podcast, uh, all the arts. Uh, when I was, uh, just a quick story, when my wife and I went to cover uh, the uh, March on Washington, and we went went to the, you know, Lincoln Memorial, listened to Corey and Merrick and all the rest, the RFK. Oh, Bob, Bobby was there as well. Yeah, right. He was incredible. I see you've interviewed him. That must have been great. And, a couple times, uh, yeah. And then we went to uh, the hearing by um, uh, Ron Johnson, where all these doctors sort of convened and told the whole story uh, of suppression, you know. Um, and what I was going to say went right out of my head. Could you reckon? Could you remember? You know, <laughs> uh, oh, oh, that's right. This was more an emotional point about storytelling. Um, so we saw all these tremendous things. And the, and the people who testified at uh, the Ron Johnson's hearing, I mean, it was unbelievable. These were this, anybody who hasn't seen it, it was five hours long, the best medical knowledge in the world from the top experts who saved millions of lives all in one, you know, for for four hours, five hours. But as I was leaving the hotel, I turned around after this hearing, it was breaking up and I turned around, you know, everyone's going to the bus. It actually was to go to the hearing. We're going to a bus and I saw, um, I can't remember his name, Ramirez, uh, Mr. Ramirez, his first name, whose son you might have heard of, who's one of the victims of myocarditis. And he's this really neat looking guy who, I don't know what he does for a living, but he looks very capable uh, in Houston. And his son was 16 years old and they were best friends, like his only child. Another cool looking 16 year old kid, looks like he's headed for a great future. Very healthy, athletic, nothing wrong with him in the world. Got the shot and four days later, 
uh, died sitting on a park bench in um, what? and he just collapsed and his heart his heart doubled in size and Dr. Peter McCulloch, who you've interviewed, you know, uh, he, he, he didn't do the autopsy, but he studied the autopsy. And this is his expertise. And he said, this is clear myocarditis. His heart swelled to double the normal size. My point of the story is that, and I think this is important somehow in this movement, so in, this, in our understanding, I guess I'm sort of touchy-feely that way as a writer, rather than just the analysis, is I look back and I saw um, Mr. Ramirez and I recognized him and I just teared up immediately. I got in the car and I said to my wife, this is the only time I've cried this entire weekend. And I have to go tell his story, uh, uh, you know, because me telling his story will maybe reach more people than me breaking down the corruption of Fauci. Yeah. Mike, if I if, if money was an issue, let's just pretend we could okay. snap our fingers and I gave you gave you 100 million US dollars to start your own news publication. How would you go about doing it? You know, uh, uh, we've, I think it's, um, we've talked about that, my wife and I, and we have an investor and have possibilities for others. But a lot of it comes to, well, what do we want to do? What's our passion? And it's so overwhelming. It's, you know, you stay up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Um, part of it comes down to what can I do and what does the world need? What the world needs is, uh, what my wife and I are trained to do, and a handful of people we have around us, is to do what... Um, you know, the Guardian or the New York Times, or the Washington Post or the LA Times does for the truth now, instead of their propaganda take yeah. over. I mean, we know how to do it at that level. So I would have a fleet of a dozen foreign correspondents or at least a foreign editor who had enough big enough budget to deal with um, uh, correspondents all over the world. In fact, can't contact me at rescue, contact me through through you, Germ, if you want to do this, because we need someone on the ground in Uttar Pradesh and someone in, in South Africa and someone in Brazil uh, to tell the stories that are being hidden. That's that's their whole game, is 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 hiding hiding the truth. And if if we just had so that that's a big part of it. investigative reporting. We obviously need a whole fleet of investigative reporters, and we have some, but we need more. The, uh, one of my friends is an investigative reporter at the uh, Washington Post. They have twenty five investigative reporters, and they've done a lot of great wow. work. Um, and we need photographers. But you know, my vision of journalism is we need photographers. We need artists. Uh, to me, art. We this this uh, Sunday night. cartoonist. <coughs> cough, cough, cartoonist. Absolutely. In fact, <laughs> I, in fact, one of the humbling things of becoming a publisher. You're you're a writer. You're an author, and you think it's all writing. I think art. If I, I can't draw, but you, I was thinking your cartoons. To me, that brings life to everything. And I'd like to get music too. I mean, all the arts basically have to sing this song, in in a multi in a multiplicity and diversity of ways, not like a single voice. Uh, but I think uh, this is going to sound really corny, but I think beauty is as important as truth. Truth and beauty. Uh, yeah, I agree. And and I think that bringing it back into the world, I want to write, I want to, and I realize I used to want to do um, an American magazine, and America can be a light for the world. But now I'm thinking much more globally, because you're right, it's a whole global thing. I mean, Americans can still be a light for the world. It's universal. But the stories we can tell of hope and beauty and normal life going on as it laughs at all this, or as important as any other thing, because people lose hope so quickly. I heard, I, I like I say, I'm sort of a, um, I, I have a lot of Italian passion in me, I guess. Broad French and Scottish too, all the good places to eat and drink. Yeah, but you don't have that accent. You, you need to no, get that, Sil that Sylvester Stallone thing going. I know. Well, when I come from Boston, I didn't get that accent taking over either, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm a kind of, um, uh, I believe in God. 
and I believe in I believe in the universal humanity, uh, and it, it probably was just indigestion. Um, but I went into a, a market uh, a, a few years ago, and I heard a voice in my head say, "I am here. Tell my story." And I seem to have this total obsession to try to tell every human story on the universal plane, which makes me probably the most dangerous enemy of globalism that there is. It's why I see their complete folly, because they're trying to say, claim there isn't a universal. So it gets me up in the world trying to love the... I think an artist's job is to love the world, to love the world, to show and to give hope. We had our only business plan for this, what ended to be a 16-year venture in, um, uh, in, you know, in this magazine journalism that we're still doing, was William Faulkner's 1949 um, uh, speech for the Nobel Prize, which is, if you haven't read it, is just very inspiring. And there's actually a tape of it where he, you know, he's like 90 years old and white-haired. I believe that man's job, the writer's job, is to is is to let humanity prevail, and you know, and and not um, if a writer writes only about, uh, you know, if a writer writes only about um, lust and not love. And if nothing of value is lost and he grieves no universal bones, he will essentially be saying, this is the end of man. I refuse to accept the end of man. There's a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. And I think that's yeah, it's an amazing book. So you and I, I'm getting tingles down my leg here, not like Joe Biden kind of things or whatever. But <laughs> who is the guy that got tingles on his legs? Chris Matthews. I'm not getting those kind of tingles. So don't be scared, mom, you know, but uh, I'm getting the tingles of that that's our greatest weapon they don't understand the materialist is so blinded and i think that's what it is so blinded by his power and his mm. he doesn't understand uh that that life is about spirit and that's what's going to join this whole movement it art has to do it journalism has art and you're doing that you know i'm, I'm trying um journalism is uplift and there's a lot of people doing that it's such an inspiring story do you think that bias is a bad thing though i i've come to the i i've come to the conclusion that we're all naturally biased no i think you're right i think we're all naturally biased and there is a movement in journalism today to say that objectivity is not all it's made up to be excuse mm. me let, let me let the dog out so it doesn't bark uh and uh and so i think that's that's important but it's it gets kind of complicated especially for the kind of human interest stories we're talking about because mm. um you know it, it, the important thing for there are sort of two types of reporters in the world. One goes out and does the, uh, and I've sort of done both, but it's clear which way I lean. One goes out and is trained to get the facts and figure out what's wrong with society to bring data and, and so forth and insight to the administrative state and the progressive dream so they can fix things. The other, which is clearly the camp I'm in, is going out to find stories that affirm the human spirit. Mm. And the only way I can do that is to really not care. And I don't. The, the way all of us say, and we get in trouble for saying we're colorblind or and all of that, is to, I don't care the, the color, the age, the weight. I'm always looking to redeem in a story, if I can, to bring hope. Because it makes me feel good. It makes other people feel good. And I think it's important. That's a different kind of journalism. And it's important that it survive. Wasn't there that, uh, wasn't there that, that, that racist man who had a dream about judging people by the content of their character and oh, yeah right right and you know that brings me back to spirit again i'm not any kind of evangelical but um the uh uh yeah, martin luther king always said you know he writes in the letter of birmingham jail he's going to the mountaintop he's talking about christ 
But when you see, uh, and of course, you also talked about Gandhi. God bless both of them, right? But when you see the, the story that secular people, materialist people tell about, Christ is not in the story so much anymore. It's all gone. Mm. That's the, the, you know, the, the classical definition of the Achilles heel where Achilles' mom dipped him, you know, to make him a god and held him by the ankle. And that's where he was weak. That's the Achilles heel of, of this yeah. movement. They, they, they got power by being materialist gods and they don't know what they don't know. It doesn't describe humanity. I actually interviewed one of the most famous scientists in the world and one of the most famous atheists, and he gave me hope in this, too. You want me to tell that story? Please do. Yeah. His name is, uh, just recently died, and his name is, um, uh, was Edward, Edward O. Wilson. I mean, obviously, a worldwide audience will know him, E.O. Wilson. He won Pulitzer Prizes. He won the National Medal of Science. He was the world's greatest ant expert at Harvard University, as well ants. as, yeah. I mean, he discovered more species of ants than anyone in history, right? And has books this thick on it. But he also is this brilliant. He was a, one of the leading evolutionary biologists in the world, a zoologist. Spent his whole life in the in the you know in the uh, in the in the um, uh, rainforest finding new ants. But a genius way beyond that. Invented the science of sociobiology. Won the National Medal of Science. I think Time Magazine described him as the the Darwin of the 20th century back in the 20th century. So no question. I, I think he sort of invented or is the lead spokesman, lead researcher, thinker of the bio, whole biodiversity movement. So this guy was a super genius. And when I was probably your age, young and handsome, maybe, you know, and I got to interview him at uh, uh, at the Russell Senate office building where this Ron Johnson just had this hearing and we just were. And I was he was going to buy on biodiversity for the Senate. And I was walking up the stairs with him. I was a reporter for the Philip Inquirer. And he said he's a very, read, you know, like uh, uh, Tweedy, uh, you know, gray haired guy, very wonderful professor glasses. And he said, hold on a second. He darted under a bush and grabbed an ant right next to the Senate said, hello, little buddy, you know, and uh, he famously was doing an interview with a reporter who, was, who went like this and slapped an ant and killed the new species right in front of him, not meaning to, you know, anyway, so I, I didn't get to interview him much because he was testifying. And I said, can I interview you for another hour? He said, no, I have to get to the airport. And, and this giant in science, of course, I totally took it for granted when I was 30 years old or whatever, said, well, just come in the, I said, can I come in the cab with you to the airport 45? And he said, sure. So in the airport, and don't forget, this is a very famous atheist and also a very famous intellectual. And in, in the car, you know, in these kind of profiles, I'm just asking them things that I've read elsewhere more than anything. I'm not necessarily going to hopefully get something new. But I said, well, one of your most famous statements that got you into trouble is that you said that um, uh, socialism is the right idea and the wrong species. But the wrong species, meaning the anthill, you know. And he got in a lot of trouble for that. And I said, what did you mean by that? He said, well, socialism doesn't answer the deepest needs of the species. Mm. And I said, well, what are the deepest needs of the human species? And he turned to me and said, someone always goes into the West, you know? And so I started to think in recent years, what he told me was, you know what, guess what? Goldilocks is a true story. And so is Buddha a true story and maybe divine too, Christ. But all these myths that, that the globalists they are false they're so true and they're so ingrained into us and what really gave me hope is he said i asked him about evolutionary biology and he said well he said put it this way if a you know if a um society in new york city in manhattan decided to raise all their children underground um and only show them you know avant-garde movies or whatever for one million years and one of their 
progeny, you know, one of their descent, you know, escaped and saw Central Park and saw across this savanna of grass a tree, they would weep in joy. Because yeah. one million years is not enough time to take to take our love of a of a beautiful vista, or for instance, or a mother's love for her child, or a doctor's love for her patient. One million years of propaganda is not enough time to get that out of us. So I say to globalists, keep trying. You're on year three. It's going to be a long struggle to get me to forget that I love my children or that I'm a man or that I love nature, whatever crap you're trying to put in my head. Uh, I consider myself sort of a C.S. Lewis um, Christian, you know, uh, as opposed to some sort of evangelical. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that. But um, and I think that if you don't have a center of hope, I think the, the danger of, of progressivism or globalism is that hope leaves the, the individual sphere and is this collective madness, you know? So I yes. do sort of agree with that. If people are, and you know, the totalitarian liter literature shows that people are more vulnerable to being co-opted by these ideas. Did you, have you talked about, uh, I know it's a big lot of talk about uh, what's that, that professor in Canada who, who talks about, you know, the madness of crowds. Um, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Well, him and also uh, um, the guy that came up with, the theory about what's happened with COVID and the people have reached a point where they're oh, sorry, Ma madness of crowds is Douglas Murray. No. Yeah. Is it? It's not, I'm thinking, I'm not thinking of the, uh, no, Jordan Peterson is definitely one of them. So, mm. um, anyway, so I think you're right. I think people who don't believe in things look for hope maybe in the wrong places. How, how can people push back against a lot of this globalist progressive nonsense? Well, uh, you know, that's such a great question. I mean, it's, I think I'm uh, reminded of what one of my mentors is this famous, uh, you know, Scotland Yard's living Sherlock Holmes who knows more about serial killers uh, and everything. I think we need to protest. I think we need to vote. I think we need to do all the things that really activated people in a democracy do. But I also think we need to live a good life. Someone asked him at a, at a, um, at a gathering, a speech I was doing with him or he was doing, uh, oh, Dr. Walter, this is also horrible. Um, what should I do? And he said, Madam, um, what I'm doing, chasing serial killers, has has nothing to do with your life. Although that can't be said today. This has to do with all of our lives. And yet he said, but the most powerful thing is to is to live a good life. And I think that gives hope to all of us. You know, if you I'm the kind of person I mean, I have two children and I'd like more that I'm the kind of person if I wanted four children, I, I'm not jealous of it. If I see someone with four children, it fills my heart with joy. So if I see you. I talk to you and your mother, you're close to your mother and she's watching. That fills my heart with joy. We need to embrace all those moments everywhere. You know, my mother, who's very young. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Well, I, I don't think she, I, I, I'm sort of psychic and I see that she's not wearing glasses. She's, you know, watching you and she's not, she's not very close to the screen. She doesn't have to be. She can see you. <laughs> In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Hmm. I see a difficult time that we're all headed into and, and now enmeshed in, but I see a, I see a great light coming out of it. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, the truth, truth will prevail, and, I, and we have truth on our side. And I think it's a humble thing. We don't have any ultimate truth. We just know that they're lying about ivermectin and that there are a lot of important truths attached to that that need to be told. And we're going to do it together and form a new chapter in history that, that, that lets people know they can't easily dissolve France, England, mothers, boys and girls into whatever their vision is. We're all here. We're not going anywhere. Oh, short and sweet. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Where can people 
follow your work? Well, um, I've written two New York Times bestsellers uh, that uh, are both being made into on the on the on the pipeline being made into um, TV TV shows in Hollywood and in London. One's called The Murder Room, and one's called Close to Shore: The True Story of Jaws. Book of uh, uh, and I book of the, the New York the New Yorker said artistry let reminiscent of Stephen Crane. It's the true story of a 1916 attack on of, of uh, sharks um, that led to the story Jaws. Eventually, history and suspense. And what else? And my wife and I are doing Rescue, um, Rescue with Michael Cabuza, which is rescue.substack.com. And come on as a free subscriber or support us if you want. And we're going to get... It's a great, yeah, it's yeah. a great Substack. Thank you. And we're going to get... Um, our goal is to get... If, if you help us, we'll get foreign correspondents in uh, Uttar Pradesh where they belong and tell the story. And, uh, and I would hope to talk to you about using some of your cartoons because I think they're just brilliant. Thank you for... I don't know how you do that side, both sides of the brain, but I admire it. Quickly. You mentioned jaws and sharks. So I yeah. happen to live at the bottom tip of the African continent where there are lots of great whites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what is your your, your your real world experience with, with sharks? Uh, oh, boy, yeah, that's embarrassing. I, I think I'm writing a book, What Would Hemingway Do? I Better Go Out and Hunt Sharks. So I, I, I hired with my brother-in-law and some other people a 50-foot boat off Ocean City, Maryland, and we got all kinds of, I think my brother-in-law brought like whiskey and cause we were the macho guys and, you know, cigars <laughs> and go out and hunt a great white. And I think after an hour we were begging, we we're all seasick begging for them to him to bring us back. So I don't have a very Hemingway-esque resume. Uh, I can tell you that when I was 12, 10 years old growing up in Boston, my parents would take me to the Cape Cod every summer and I would spend four hours at a time in four feet of water, you know, hunting little things for my net in four hours, they wouldn't even look up. And I can tell you that I've interviewed many times the top shark expert on the East Coast of the United States in, in Great Whites, who's in Massachusetts, uh, Greg Skomal, and he will not let his children go in knee deep because, yeah. uh, you know, and that's a whole other conflict. It really is a little bit of it's attached to this globalism rewilding where, you know, it used to be that if a, if a tiger kills a human being in, in India, uh, that they kill the tiger. Now they move the village, you know, and mm. that's happened in Cape Cod with Great Whites. But. I can't pretend to know anything about great whites to someone who lives at the tip of Africa. No, but I mean, when you when you watch Jaws, right? Did you did you avoid the ocean after that? Well, you get right to the most embarrassing details. <laughs> uh, I mean, I am I am a, a very very strong swimmer, but I have to admit, I mean, Jaws for me, I'm uh, probably older than your mother, so I'm sure I am. So, in 1974, I was 17, and um, uh, and I would swim always. And after that, you know, anybody in my generation, all you hear is dump, 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 dump. And I was nervous <laughs> about it. I decided to go swimming in Wellfleet after someone. I, I went with this top shark scientist investigating the killings in Wellfleet a couple of years ago for a sequel to my book, a planned sequel. And uh, I got in the water just to say that I had, right? And I looked up and I saw a co like a, it looks like a sort of brown coconut bobbing on the swell about 10 feet away. And I realized it was a seal. And I thought, this is really stupid for me to be here now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I don't know. I mean, you have lived with it in your society a lot more than they have in the United States. Here is mostly fiction until lately. Uh, but I mean, I think a lot of that fear is, is, <laughs> is silly because have you watched Jaws again? Because that shark is so ridiculously mechanical. I know, I know. <laughs> You're one of those. You're one of those people destroying all our pillars of civilization. 
Jaws was nothing. No, you're right. It does look pretty hokey compared to uh, current, uh, you know, horror manifestations. Um, <laughs> statistically, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, you're always going to be safe. So my general advice when people ask me, and when I do media things, that's all they ever ask me, you know. I say, well, you should feel free to, uh, to swim anywhere unless you see Discovery Channel uh, cameras nearby, you know, <laughs> waiting for you to, you know. But it, people have, have, have uh, the statistical risk is different in different parts of the world, obviously. Mm. But the, the Great White, one of the things about the Great White, I, you know, there's this tendency, we're talking political correctness and cancel culture again. The New Yorker had a um, cartoon, a great cartoon, showing this old lady crossing, you know, like at Lexington Avenue or something. And this Great White, like towering, all just sketched, you know, towering, you could do this, right? Towering over her and saying, See, I'm not walking across the street. See, I'm not so bad after all. So, <laughs> but see, I I think when people say, "Aren't we malign- aren't we maligning the, the great white? Aren't we? Isn't it unfortunate what we're doing to the you know to this saying it's a killer?" I say, if that shark could sit in a chair and talk to you, he would say, "You have four seconds to leave the room, Mrs. Johnson, or I'm going to eat you." What do you think I'm here for? I clean up. Did you ever read about Zeus? Did you ever read about Poseidon? That's me. I hate, I'm not helping you across the street. I'm, I am. I think of them as sort of like, do you love do you love the, the lightning and thunder? You're afraid of lightning and thunder. Be afraid of the great white shark. That ennobles it. its purpose, you know. <laughs> so anyway, Mike Capuzzo, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> so thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Good luck. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.